This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the on-again, off-again trade talks between China and the U.S. appear to be back on. We have the delegation in Washington, D.C. this week, so let's get the latest. We'll bring in Sean Donnan. He's a senior trade and globalization reporter for Bloomberg News. He's calling in from Bloomberg's 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. And we're also joined here by Andy Brown. Andy's the editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Uh, He is with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Sean, let's start with you. Uh, Just give us the latest on where you think uh, the talks are right now talking tomorrow. Uh, But we're starting to get the shape of a deal emerge. Uh, We were hearing overnight that uh, we were thinking initially that this would be in the form of sort of one memorandum of understanding. We're hearing as many as a half dozen uh, different memoranda uh, are are coming together as part of this. These are in detailed areas like intellectual property, what to do on agriculture, what to do uh, on questions like industrial subsidies. And and, and that's important because we're starting to see the architecture of deal. If you go back a couple of weeks, we were hearing that there were just no pieces of paper that they were even talking about. Now we've got at least half a dozen pieces of paper that they're they're working off of. That's a sure sign of progress. The other thing, the other big news that that, that we're hearing is we've had another uh, big aggressive offer from the Chinese in terms of purchases. And this gets at one of President Trump's main asks, if you will, for these talks. And that is that the Chinese do something to reduce the U.S. trade deficit with China. And that big aggressive offer that, that, that we've heard is, is that the Chinese are offering uh, to buy $30 billion more a year in, uh, in agricultural pro- exports from the U.S. Uh, that's a big number. In 2017, just for perspective, the U.S. exported $24 billion right. worth of agricultural exports. So, so we're talking about more than doubling. All right. So we got that going on. So it looks like one step or two steps forward, perhaps. And then at the same time, we've got a Chinese port reportedly banning coal imports from Australia. So I think it's kind of interesting, perhaps. Perhaps the timing of this. Andy, how do you see it in terms of what's going on with China and trade, not only on the U.S. level, but kind of global level? Well, I think this is a reminder that whatever happens on the trade front, the real what's really to play for now is this technology cold war between the United States and China, and Huawei is the focus of that. And so Australia has actually decided not to make use of Huawei in building out its 5G network, and this could well be a sort of China lashing out at Australia over that. We don't quite know what it amounts to yet. One port has blocked access, has blocked shipments of Australian iron ore, Dalian, only 2% of Australia's total exports of iron ore. But iron ore is one of Australia's, if not the biggest export to China. So, you know, uh, Australia is going to be extremely worried. I mean, it's, it's, it, the, the nightmare is right. having to make this choice, right, between China, um, and obviously China is the critical export market for Australia. No other developed country is as dependent on trade with China as Australia but is and the ba- U.S., the security partner. Andy, is it about Australia, though, or is it about China saying, hey, folks, yeah, yeah, it's a Huawei is 
crucial to China, right? Important company in, in China, and it's all about 5G. Is this a bigger message that they're yeah, trying yeah. to send? Yeah, I, I think Australia is a proxy. I mean, they, they want to go for the U.S., and they realize if they go to the U.S., this is going to, this is going to make the, the trade talks even more complicated than they already are, so it's lashing out at, at America's friends and allies. So, Sean Donnan, um, let's think about this. Which of the two sides in European probably has the most incentive to get a deal done? It's been on again, off again, as we said before. Who's got the most incentive here? That's a really interesting question. I think the, the answer is both have an incentive to get a deal done, uh, but for different reasons. From the Chinese perspective, it is to kind of put this 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 uh, drag on their economy behind them. Uh, and from the U.S. perspective, it's a political one. At some point, Donald Trump needs to uh, demonstrate some wins on his on trade policy. You know that 2020 election doesn't feel so far away. And he's going to have to go into that, uh, having delivered uh, an outcome for many of the farmers who have been taking it on the chin for him in, in, the, in this trade war and, and, and so on. So I, I think, but I think Andy's right. There, there, is, a, there is a bigger uh, piece to this. I think we're, you know, we're, we're going to end up with a deal at, at some point in the next few weeks, and then we're immediately going to be hit with lots of stories. And uh, I'm sure Andy and I will be writing some of them about how this is, uh, you know, that's not the end of this all. The, well, you know, the rivalry has entered a new chapter and uh, and and that's going to be with us for a long time. And that gets at the politics of it for Donald Trump as well. He has to be both tough with China while at the same time being able to deliver uh, some kind of result from his trade assault. But I also do wonder, we've talked about this here at Bloomberg, Kyle Bass wrote that uh, opinion piece about how... Th- President Trump has a, a really kind of ideal spot right now because there's pressure on China because of slower growth, uh, so much debt. They've got a lot of things going on in their economy that has leverage to kind of really push forward, uh, Andy, on those things that really have mattered to many administrations over the past years, whether it's intellectual property, you know, send a go ahead, buy soybeans. But what we really care about is high technology going forward, don't we, in terms of the U.S.? And, and kind of saving or maintaining their position? Well, that, that, that's the question, right? I mean, is Trump going to be satisfied with a trade deal? Is he, is he going to be happy with this $30 billion purchase? Political win, perhaps. So I mean, you but know, not the, necessarily a trade win. Right. Well, right, well the, the risk for him is a bad trade deal, which where he packages up some cosmetic changes in the Chinese economy and tries to present this as a big win. And then he's got, he's, he's got a risk on two fronts, which is that his own trade negotiators, Lighthizer, mm-hmm. uh, are going to feel that they have been completely undercut. And then you have uh, a consensus, a cross-party consensus now in, in, in Washington, D.C., that the United States needs to use the leverage that it has mm-hmm. to extract real concessions from China in terms of its industrial stru- uh, structure. Right. So, so it's going to be very difficult for him to get away with a deal that doesn't address some of these more fundamental issues. Which we've said many times, it's complicated, <laughs> this stuff. Um, great to get some time with you. Andy Brown, Editorial Director, Bloomberg New Economy Forum, Inner Interactive Brokers Studio here in New York, and Sean Donnan keeping us up to date on all things trade, senior trade and globalization reporter at Bloomberg News in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. As we 
mentioned earlier, one of the things we like to focus on is what companies are doing in terms of business investments, capital uh, expenditures. It's a great indicator of what's going on in terms of uh, the corporate environment. David Hunt is in the house. He's president and chief executive officer of PGM. They've got roughly $1.2 trillion in assets under management based in Newark uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio here in New York City. David, nice to have you here with Paul and myself. Good afternoon. So tell me a little bit about what you guys are seeing in terms of business investment, because certainly capital expenditures was one of the things, one of the metrics we certainly focused on in this latest round of earnings. Yeah, we really uh, like to try to understand what's happening with CapEx, partly because it often is a precursor to an improvement in productivity. And we all know uh, in the United States and in most of the developed world, if we're unable to get productivity back up somewhere near historic levels, we're never really going to get out of this slow growth uh, phenomenon. So we track productivity very closely, and therefore we're very interested to see whether we're getting enough investment uh, to really believe that that will come back. So the question is, are we? So 2018 was an important year, and the uh, numbers are in. And the numbers would say that CapEx did improve. Uh, it came out at about $630 billion, um, which is a 14% increase for the S&P over the year. And so if you're an optimist, you would look at that and say, you know, that actually finally looks like it's coming back to levels that you would expect. But to be honest, uh, they're not levels that are unusual for this point in the cycle. So there are levels that are still below what we would have seen in 05 and 06, and that with this very large tax break. So the pessimists uh, will say, yes, it's an awful lot better, but we didn't have a breakout year the way we had hoped, um, and we probably shouldn't expect to see that coming out too quickly um, in, uh, in, in the productivity figures. Now, there's actually a problem with the uh, S&P numbers, and that is that they really only track hardcore CapEx. They don't track R&D and investments in intellectual property, which actually in some ways are more important for driving productivity than good old-fashioned plants and machinery. Although uh, it can be longer term, I'm thinking, right? Right. It, right. It so how, how, how do you track that? Because that's so important for tech so, technology. So uh, the, B, the BEA fortunately does a survey which is much more broadly uh, than, than just the S&P 500. Uh, thanks to the government shutdown, we don't actually have the final numbers for the year. But through the third quarter, that actually showed another very healthy improvement uh, of investments in intellectual property. And so I would say, again, if you're on the optimistic side of things, you would look at that and say, say uh, that actually bodes very well for a pickup in productivity. The problem with it is that it looks like it's in all the same sector. So That's what I was going to ask. Who, who's, who's investing? Who's doing a good job yeah. and maybe who's underinvesting? And, and that is the, 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 the real key, Paul, because uh, the averages don't look very good for productivity, but that hides all kinds of sins. Uh, you have under that uh, much of the professional services business, finance. You have the technology sectors, communications. Productivity has actually been quite robust there. On the other side of things, you have uh, retail. Uh, you have the entire healthcare sector. You have the government, um, where productivity really hasn't budged uh, at all. And so, unfortunately, if you then track back to where is that intellectual property investment, it's in those same industries that are already doing better. And what we don't yet see is a pickup in investment in those industries where we really need to see them uh, get their game together. I feel like when you said retail and government, I'm like, hasn't that been going on for a while? Or no? Oh, yes. Right? We complain about it being, you know, 
just too big and not very productive. And I feel like we've been talking about that for yeah. years. Retail to, to some extent as well. And, 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 and services more broadly has, have also, uh, also struggled. So um, I think that the clearly it's better. But to the extent that we have a, a, a real divergence between those sectors that are driving productivity and those that are not, I think we'll continue to see those diverge. David, we've got about 45 seconds left here. So I'm thinking I'm sitting in my car, sitting at home or whatever, or I'm going to download this podcast. What does it mean for me as an investor? How do I take that information and act on it? So for us, what this says is that uh, global growth is likely to remain muted and below what its long-term historical averages are going to be because we didn't see the big pickup, which would allow us to be optimistic that productivity will reach also its long-term average. So if you said, what does this mean for me? We'd say longer term, lower returns across asset classes. Ah. Yeah, that's... That's that, interesting. Yeah. Right? But I think it's it's really important, as, as you mentioned, David, to try to get a handle on some of those high growth areas and how those investments are being made in R&D and so on. Because you see the tech companies, you know, they're hiring more, they're spending more in R&D, and they seem to be putting the money where the mouth is. And if you're a cloud yeah. company, people have been buying, you know, as a recipient of all that CapEx, you've been kind of uh, doing pretty well in this environment. They, they have. Now, on the flip side, they're also not creating nearly as many jobs. So Correct. it's less capital. Less jobs, but at the same time, a lot of revenue. David Hunt of PGM joining us in our studio. So come on, everybody, because we have a lot of stuff to talk about when it comes to Tesla. Another week chock full of Tesla news, including today. ARK Invest, which invests in disruptive companies, that includes Tesla, took a trip to Fremont, California last week, sat down, caught up with Elon Musk. It's all in the ARK Invest FYI for your innovation podcast. Tasha Keeney is analyst at ARK Invest. She hosts the podcast. She and ARK Invest founder, CEO and CIO, Kathy Wood, were in Fremont to talk with Mr. Musk, and she joins us now. And I got to say, Paul, I'll ask the question I was curious about, too. How did this happen? Because he doesn't talk to everybody. Uh, he doesn't, yeah. Um, you know, we, we reached out over Twitter. This is all over of his, his yeah. favorite <laughs> platform. Um, and, you know, I think, I think so ARK's research process is so different because we're long-term investors and we really try to size the market and understand the technology. And I, I think that's what he was drawn to. You know, we're not focused on next quarter's production figures. We're, we're focused on the long-term. And you said that at the top of the podcast. You're like, it's not going to be about those kind of numbers and yep. things. Yeah. So, Tasha, what, I mean, he's got so many things, I'm sure, in, in his brain. But as it relates to Tesla, what's, what's number one on his list that he thinks is the next big opportunity or the next big maybe challenge to be surmounted? So, I mean, I think right now Tesla's really focused on Model 3, um, getting the low-cost variants out. Uh, they, they just started shipping to Europe and China. Um, but uh, the podcast, what, what we see as sort of the largest opportunity ahead of Tesla is all about autonomous driving. Um, so we have a $4,000 price target on Tesla over the next five years. Most of that is driven by autonomous because we think that's such a large opportunity and Tesla's really well positioned to take care of it. Wait, that 4000 4, yeah. 4000 yeah. right? <laughs> Correct. Okay. Yeah. It's five wait, wait. years. Okay. Uh, yes. So 4000 over five years, it's right now a $292 and change stock. That is pretty bullish. We, we are bullish. And I mean, we think, we think that market in general, the autonomous mobility as a service market, so autonomous ride hailing, in other words, should be valued at $2 trillion in the equity market today. And it's virtually unaccounted for. I mean, we don't see any analyst assigning t value to Tesla because of this. I think part of the problem is, you know, whether or not self-driving will be perfected. You talked to Elon Musk about this in that podcast. Listen up, everyone. 
So, I mean, this is an amazing technological feat. What gives you the confidence that this is a solvable problem? And then why should Tesla be the one to solve this? Well, I, first of all, I think it's helpful to clarify with people. People think sometimes that I'm like a business person or finance person or something like that. I, I'm an engineer. I do engineering, always have. So I, I, mean, I wrote software for like 15 years, 20 years. And I understand technology and software at quite a fundamental level. I know what we need to solve to make full self-driving future complete. I think we've got an extremely good technical team. I, I, I think we really have the, the, the best people. It's an honor to work with them. So he reminds me, that's of course you talking to Elon Musk, of my dad who was an engineer, right? Like he was constantly thinking about how to fix things and, and would be taking apart things in our home. And it was just kind of amazing. Um, but he thinks he can perfect self-driving everywhere. Yes, he's, he's very confident in that. How, um, but how, how quickly can he do that? Okay, so, so he said that by the end of 2019 that autopilot would be feature complete. In other words, have all the features necessary to be a fully autonomous car. And then at that time, you imagine there's a validation period and the regulators have to sign off on when. Um, it can be autonomous in the sense that the driver relinquishes all responsibility and could just fall asleep in the backseat. So in the podcast, he says that's the end of 2019. Um, now, we've been investors in Tesla for a while. We have a lot of conviction in the stock, but of course, we know that the these timelines aren't exact, and there's really no way to predict exactly when that'll happen. Right, right. <laughs> right. But you know, even if you add like a 50% margin to that timeline, um, that's still pulling off a really amazing technological feat. And uh, we think that Tesla could be one of the first to market in, in what we think is a natural geographic monopoly market. Um, so that'll be huge. So Tasha, obviously the technology is just extraordinary and really change, uh, dis- disrupting the auto industry. Actually, manufacturing these things is proven to be probably more difficult than he or maybe some of his investors thought. What gives you conviction as you think about your $4,000 price target that uh, he can ramp up production across a product line, which he has not really demonstrated that to date? Yeah. So, you know, Tesla's really just graduating from a startup into a, a mass production company. Um, I, I think the the production numbers that we've seen so far from the Model 3, I mean, what, what you have to consider with Tesla is, again, um, Musk sets very aggressive timelines. And it's sort of like he, he might fall a month short of those, but they're still accomplishing the impossible. Um, so I think that's what gives us confidence in, in this future. And and really, if you think of Tesla, I mean, Tesla is really the only auto company that was built from the ground up as a software company. While manufacturing is extremely hard, and Elon Musk talks about that, he says it's a very hard does, problem yep. to solve, you have to think that for the traditional autos, it's much harder to transition your entire business model into this new software landscape than it is for Tesla to, say, perfect the fit and finish on a vehicle. He said on the podcast something about cars as carriers for the autonomous software, right? That's how he sees things, right? It's just yeah. a different way of thinking. And is he hoping that that software is then used by a lot of other auto manufacturers or no? exclusively Tesla. So Tesla's traditionally been a very vertically integrated company. So they plan on launching basically their autonomous version of Uber, the Tesla network. So I, as a Tesla owner, can sign my car up for the owner for the network once it's fully autonomous. And then you can imagine Tesla can see the network with vehicles itself as well. So it looks as if they're going to sort of own this at first. Um, now, one of the questions that we asked him is, how do you feel about other automakers building on your platform? And he said he's open to this, um, you know, both on the, the vehicle platform side and with autopilot, but that that, you know, the traditional auto players usually, one, they, they don't really want to do that. They want to do it on their own they don't if want they to can. Share. Although you do and, see interesting alliances developing yes. as this market continues to evolve. And we think that those alliances, um, specifically related to electric vehicles and autonomous driving, are because 
um, this is such a challenging problem. These are two, uh, you know, major transitions that, that automakers have to go through and they're figuring out that it's harder than they initially thought and they have to partner. So the fact that Tesla thinks that they can do this on their own and so far has been pretty successful is, I mean, what differentiates it from the pack? So how can, you've been a longtime investor, successful investor in Tesla. How concerned are you uh, about the management turnover at this company? How much, it seems like, again, the general counsel just left uh, this, this week after two months. Yeah. It's been an ongoing issue. How, how concerning is that to you? You know, I think Tesla's probably a pretty difficult place to work. Again, because they have these incredibly hard uh feats that they're pulling off. And I think uh, we've heard that Elon Musk has a really particular style. And if, if you don't jive with that style, it's probably not the right place for you. Um, so so we're, we're sort of not surprised to see high turnover. However, you know, if, if the CTO were to leave tomorrow, of course, that might indicate a technology issue. But, um, you know, we look this week at the general counsel leaving and he's going to remain in, in an outside counsel role for Tesla. Um, you might take it as a sign that they don't they don't have the sort of litigation litigation issues ahead of them that they once thought they did. Um, so we're, we're not con- too concerned right now. What about something like just today, they uh, the Model 3 losing uh, the rec- recommendation, coveted recommendation from Consumer Reports, right? It also dropped the company's brand from its top 10. Um, you know, how do you, just got about 30 seconds left, how do you guys kind of filter in these things that often happen on a weekly basis for Tesla? Yeah, I mean, the Consumer Reports, it's sort of been a whirlwind, right? Last year, they um, they reported issues with the, the breaking of the, the Model 3, and then Tesla actually fixed that with a software update. This is, of course, a hardware problem, so they'd have to go in and, and change the manufacturing. But again, I, I think it goes back to that software differentiation. You, you right. have to think that sort of making the trim tighter is, is easier than making an autonomous car. And, and to be fair, Tesla coming out telling uh, a competitor that the majority of the Model 3 issues have been uh, corrected. Thank you, thank you so much. Love talking about this company. I know our listeners uh, love to hear about it. Tasha, thanks. Tasha Keeney, she's analyst over at ARK Invest. They've got $6.8 billion in assets under management. Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, I'm not sure who had the worst night last night. The Duke basketball team, which lost to arch rival North Carolina. Zion Williamson, their star freshman who suffered a, a knee injury. Or Nike, whose sneaker essentially disintegrated on Zion Williamson's foot uh, in front of everybody to see. Uh, so see what it means for Nike, the company. Let's bring in our friend Hen Grazutis. Hen covers apparel and footwear uh, sector for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, again, not a good public relations uh, night last night for Nike. How much do they care? So, you know, basketball as a category is something that's really important for Nike uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is about $4.3 billion a year business for them, so around 14% of their wholesale business. So it's a big category. Um, it's also one of those categories that there's a, there's a very strong correlation between the sneakers and the players that are actually wearing them. Um, so for, for Nike, basketball is a big deal. I'm not sure that one isolated Incident is going to make any difference. I mean, um, stuff happens, right? right? It's one of the million. Yeah. It was right on national television. <laughs> the first minute of the game. Yeah, right. the, Former the President players. Obama right. was in the audience. There was a you lot of stuff. You couldn't stage it, but I know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but you do think about this. Like, I mean, if this player, I'm assuming, right, he's in an endorsement or endorser of Nike brands. Like, if he says, I don't want to be affiliated, that would be a bummer. Right. So, he's not. Affiliated with Nike okay. yet, right? Um, Duke because he can't be right he can't as a college as a college player. player. Um, but we, you know, 
we can assume that he was probably a big target for Nike to go after when he goes to the NBA. I mean, people were talking about this player as the next, you know, LeBron James, maybe Michael Jordan even. So it's a huge marketing asset in the future for Nike um, if they want to go after him. And that might create a problem for them. Um, not necessarily, though. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, yeah, A lot of speculation is that when he does go pro, he'll be obviously a very attractive person to sign up and make a lot of money from whatever shoe company he endorses. And maybe now he's not thinking about Nike so so well. But so, but just in general, Hen, it, it seems like Nike and, and, and others, they really rely on star athletes to drive their brand. Um, was it, So for Nike, were they? I think they were kind of like one of the earliest users of that strategy. How's that worked out for them? Right. So over the years, I mean, Jordan, Michael Jordan being the first right. athlete yep. that actually has a, a it's not the first athlete that had a, a sneaker name out to him, but it's the first one that kind of expanded to the size that it is today. And now the sales of Michael Jordan, the Jordan brand is $3 billion on a global um, um, level um, between footwear and apparel. So it's obviously a big business. Um, we saw the same thing happen with Steph Curry and Under Armour. Under Armour had zero basketball products and they got Steph Curry. Um, and obviously has a, a sizable basketball business now. So in specifically in this category, there's a tight correlation between the two. I do also wonder if they might be clever here and take this opportunity and tr- maybe have some fun with an ad or something going forward. Um, and that could be, you know, kind of a positive for them ultimately, like to kind of embrace it. We screwed up, whatever, you know, right. we had a, you know and, and kind of run with it in terms of marketing. It's funny because some people were asking me today if it puts Adidas or Puma in a better position to get Zion going forward. And I said, you know, Nike might be in, in a good position because they can make a story out of it. Yeah. It just put and the player in a better position. And who are we talking about today? We're talking about Nike. Nike, right. Yep. So how, I mean, I'm just taking a look, you know, the Nike stock price up, uh, total return over the last five years, about 132%, you know, twice the S&P. So the stock's done great. What, so aside from the basketball market for them, how's the company doing in general? So the, the category, so the athletic category in general uh, is doing very, very well in the last few years. And it's this entire like, kind of fashion shift from um, dress clothes to really casual athleisure. It played very well into what the company does best. Um, they had a couple of years with Adidas coming out with new products that, that caught fire. But since 2016, they actually are doing a lot better. So Nike coming out with a lot of new products, not a, new technologies into the market and being very successful. And I do also wonder where you have kind of sports in general kind of extending the leagues, whether it's lacrosse, whether it's football, you know, coming in with other leagues to provide content because everybody wants content, whether this kind of helps something like a Nike because kind of sports is constantly out there in the psyche absolutely uh, sports and uh, wellness fitness is becoming always been very strong in the u.s but we're seeing on a global level becoming a lot bigger especially in china asia these are big markets that are not nearly as penetrated as a market like u.s so you mentioned asia who uh, who is doing a good job there because um, I, I think of names like uh, adidas and out, out of europe on under armor here in the states who's doing particularly well in asia it's it's tough to say because they're all putting out tremendous numbers right uh, they're all grabbing share uh, as fast as they can so we're seeing double digit growth from each and every one of those brands but nike is a strong brand like anywhere else does china will they have you know there's on such a push to have kind of a, their own domestic producers especially when it comes to high tech and so on and so forth what about when it comes to brands will we see ultimately a nike and adidas or adidas be kind of facing some kind of chinese manufacturer going forward is that, there something like that coming that down the could road? happen they do have domestic uh, brands that do 
okay, but it's more in the mid-tier segment. It's funny because Nike and Adidas are actually perceived as a premium brand in China, and yeah. that's going to continue in the perceivable future. All right. Well, good stuff. I uh, really appreciate it. And if you haven't seen that video on YouTube or Google, just Google it because everybody right. else has seen it. Google Zion. Yeah. <laughs> Google Zion. Uh, Hien Grazutas, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. He's our apparel and footwear analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for Drive to the Close. Let's take a look at how investors are navigating the volatility of the markets that we've experienced over the last several months. To get a sense of that, let's bring in Aaron Kennan. Aaron is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Clear Harbor Asset Management with over $700 million under management. He's based in New York City. He's on the phone with us. Aaron Thanks so much for joining us. Um, again, thinking about that volatility, that December swoon followed by what has been a very strong start to 2019, how has that volatility impacted how you're positioning yourself? Well, thanks for having me back, Paul and Carol. Uh, you know, we're, we're sort of very client-focused on, you know, what the, the long and short-term objectives are of our clients across their financial life. So, we certainly assess volatility. It can impact their emotions, um, and their emotions are an important part of the process of keeping them aligned with their asset allocation. So uh, certainly years of complacency, which is what we did see prior to the last 20% correction, um, people have awoken up to that. You look at investor sentiment, and it's, it's sort of weak right now. And, um, it, you know, it's been unsettling for some clients, but uh, we communicate frequently with our client base, and so uh, it, it, I don't think it's rattled or surprised uh, them. If you look at the course of history, 10 and 20% corrections are, are quite normal. But certainly the last four or five months uh, have been you know, remarkably interesting from both a monetary, a volatility, uh, and an overall market perspective. Well, it's funny you say that because, right, we've kind of gotten spoiled over the last 10 years. We've had market corrections, but for the most most point, or for the most part, Aaron, it's really been a steady move to the upside when it comes certainly to the equity markets. When I look at something like the S&P 500 that's bounced, what, almost 18% off that uh, Christmas Eve low, and I think about what the S&P is doing for the year, it's up about 10%. Any year where we have a 10% gain, I'd say, okay, I'm pretty good with that. So do you advise some of your investors to say, let's take, I hate to say money off the table. I feel like that's an overused phrase. But do you say, let's be happy with these gains because who knows what the heck's going to happen for the rest of this year. So then do you take kind of a more conservative stance and position for the rest of the year? The way that we tend to um, affect that change, Carol, is not to say, oh, we're in equities, now we're going to go into cash because we think the future may not be as good over the next uh, eight to ten months as it was over the first two months of the year. We we will look at sectors, and we will become perhaps a bit more defensive. So an area like the regulated utility space, you have unbelievable opportunities with single high single-digit uh, returns on equity with great management teams and, and real growth segments of the economy, despite despite the, the, the question of whether or not we're entering a recession or not. 
and um, and so we will we will move into things like utilities. We'll become more defensive. We'll own uh, staples, not just Procter and Gamble, but staples that are uh, a fraction of the market cap that are still trading at market correlations or betas that are significantly less than the overall market. So certainly, uh, we'll remain invested in equities, but we may put on a bit more of a cautious posture. Uh, and I think that's really where we are. To your point, we're up. Gosh, over 11% in the S&P. We're up uh, about the same across the global uh, equity market. Uh, the question in this sort of one and a half to two percent now uh, U.S. growth paradigm. We were last year in the four percent growth paradigm. Uh, it, it, have we already seen uh, the gains for the year? And and we may very well have. Um, in fact, it, it's very uh, welcoming that the Fed has has certainly uh, sort of moved towards a much more neutral posture. Uh, we think that has been generally the, the basis for the 18% move that you articulated off the December 24th uh, low in the S&P 500. Uh, but earnings growth is, is now sluggish. Global growth is now sluggish. And we're certainly much more cautious now than we were just a month or two ago. So, Aaron, how do you – with the Fed on the sidelines, earnings growth, as you mentioned, uh, sluggish. Uh, investors kind of have to focus on something. And concerns are that maybe some of the geopolitical – issues around the globe, whether it's China trade talks or Brexit and slowing European growth, how much do those global geopolitical issues kind of impact kind of your outview for the or outlook for the equity markets? Well, I, I think in the short term, you know, for example, you take a look at currency and one view that I had probably going into December of last year was maybe the dollars peaked. Um, I've sort of revised that view a, a bit. Global growth has slowed much more aggressively than I would have anticipated. I did. We did start to see some incipient uh, points of, of economic deceleration in the first quarter of even last year. Uh, but um, to the extent that global growth or an acceleration in global growth were to recur, perhaps that would be a catalyst for a weaker dollar. But we're not seeing that, and I think that uh, bodes, uh, you know, sort of changes our paradigm around, you know, what it means for the currency, what it means for foreign earnings coming back into U.S. dollars, but. Um, UK is a huge question mark. Uh, the China-U.S. trade spat is a question mark, but it's also an opportunity. And we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what's the base case that's already sort of priced in the market? And we think it's for some sort of incrementally positive outcome on the issue of tariffs, on the issue of IP theft and cybercrime. But, um, you know, it could go either way. We're, we're all just sort of sort of guesstimating right now and wondering what sort of real negotiations are occurring the North Korea conversation that will be occurring in Singapore um, and the outcome of that, uh, trade spats, uh, excuse me, uh, political spats with Iran and how that will impact the energy markets perhaps. So lots of uncertainties. They're always there. They're always impacting our thought process in the markets, and that will always be uh, part of uh, our consideration. But history does tell us that um, geopolitical risks tend to be temporary events for equity markets. Um, and so uh, we, we're looking at the fundamentals, right. and we're looking at our clients and asking the right questions so that our clients have the right portfolios and the right structure within their portfolios. Yeah, I feel like pick your year since the financial crisis. We've had a long list of worries every year to deal with. Aaron Kennan, thank you so much. Co-founder, Chief Executive Officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management, over $700 million in assets under management on the phone from New York. Right, And Paul, it kind of gets back to this is where you want to see what's going on in terms of earnings momentum. What are CEOs doing? Are they hiring? Are 
are wages going up? Like, I feel like these are the metrics that will tell you ultimately what's to come. Yeah, I, I think so. Again, with the Fed on the sideline here for the foreseeable future, I think the uh, focus is, has turned back to earnings and generally the fourth quarter, I think was okay. I think most people will tell you it was okay. Yeah. But, um, you know, obviously the earnings uh, growth outlook for 2019 is significantly less than it is for 2018. And I know uh, Gina Adams at Bloomberg Intelligence is calling for earnings trough in the first quarter. Uh, so maybe uh, as we start looking at past the first quarter, um, that can be a little bit of a catalyst for the equity markets here. And I also still, I feel like my head is still spinning from, I feel like late last year, everybody was thinking like the year, the world was coming to an end, right? And then the Fed comes out, yeah. changes its tune and okay, maybe things aren't so bad ever, after all. Yeah. In hindsight, you know, that, that turnaround by the Fed, it really was just amazing. And you just kind of wonder, was it really the data or yeah. were there some other things at play there? Because, you know, in such a short period of time to see that kind of turnaround uh, by, by the Fed was just astonishing. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.